Hello, and welcome to DE Classified, a podcast showcasing destroyer escorts. Each month, a member of USS Slater's education crew will highlight a specific destroyer escort and share the stories of the sailors that served aboard these trim but deadly ships. Today, we are going to DE Classify not a ship, but a Greek holiday, Ohide. to the unconquerable nation of Greece. Ships of the Royal Hellenic Navy convoying, minesweeping, and patrolling. Brave-hearted men upholding the finest traditions of Greek valor under the command of their admiral, who, when their homeland was overwhelmed, carried on the fight. An epic story of faith and courage under extremes of anxiety for loved ones suffering untold horrors in their desolated country. The priest has inspired them through the dark days, and the cheerful optimism of their leaders has kept alive the memory of happier times. The Greek army is no less filled with that high courage which transcends adversity. Training and reorganizing in the Middle East, these descendants of the ancient Athenian warriors prepare for the day of liberation. Their commander-in-chief is their king, who in a message from Cairo on Greek Independence Day said, a victorious end of the struggle is now in sight. The Greek forces will never lay down their arms until Greece rises again triumphant. Their fight is for the great homecoming. The date is October 28, 1940. For 13 months, war has been raging across Europe. Today, war will officially spill over the Greek border. The Axis powers, led by Adolf Hitler, and his forces were in the midst of a blitzkrieg, overrunning country after country in lightning speed. Poland fell first in September of 1939, followed by Denmark, Norway, Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and France the following spring. Italy had already been busy by annexing Albania in the spring of 1939, British, Somaliland, and East Africa, and Greece shortly after. After Hitler began his march across Europe, Italy joined to further strengthen the Axis powers. That morning, the Italian ambassador to Greece, Emanuele Grazi, rushed to the home of Prime Minister Ioannis Metaxas and woke him from his slumber. Metaxas, still in his robe and rubbing the cobwebs out of his eyes, was given an ultimatum. Allow Italian troops to peacefully enter Greece and occupy strategic locations. The note accuses Greece of cooperating with Great Britain against Italy. Quote, But now it is obvious that the policy of the Greek government has been and is directed toward transforming Greek territory or at least permitting Greek territory, to be transformed into a base for war operations against Italy. This could only lead to an armed conflict between Italy and Greece, which the Italian government has every intention of avoiding. The Italian government, therefore, has reached the decision to ask the Greek government, as a guarantee of Greek neutrality and as a guarantee of Italian security, for permission to occupy, with its own armed forces, several strategic points in Greek territory for the duration of the present conflict with Great Britain. The Italian government 
asks the Greek government not to oppose this occupation and not to obstruct the free passage of the troops carrying it out. End quote. Now, Metaxas was no fool. He had known for years that it was only a matter of time that war would come knocking. He had been fortifying his mountainous borders in anticipation for a ground invasion. After a few moments of silence, he responded, Alors, c'est la guerre. So it is war. So, who exactly was this man that hoped to lead Greece's defense against fascism? Ioannis Metaxas, born the 12th of April, 1871, on the island of Ithaca in the Ionian Sea, Prior to his entry into politics, Metaxas was a military man. He graduated from the Hellenic Military Academy as an engineer's second lieutenant on the 10th of August 1890 and received his first taste of war in the Greco-Turkish War of 1897. It was during this period that he was appointed to the staff of Crown Prince Constantine, the Greek commander-in-chief. The two became close and Metaxas was taken under the prince's wing thus helping boost Metaxas through the military ranks. His relationship to Constantine earned him a spot at the highly regarded Berlin War Academy. The training he received would go on to help him modernize the Greek army prior to the Balkan Wars of 1912-1913. During the First World War, he disagreed with the politics of Greece's involvement in the war and was subsequently exiled. He eventually returned in 1920 and resumed his role in the army as a major general. However, he continued to butt heads with politicians and retired once again. Following King Constantine's overthrow and exile in September of 1922, Metaxas chose to enter politics and found the Free Thinkers Party. This foray into politics was not the most successful. Over the next decade, his party only achieved marginal success in elections and held a minority amount of seats in parliament. As the Great Depression increased its grip on the world, as well as Greece, conflicts arose within the government on how to best govern in a time of great poverty and unrest. During this time, King George II, the son of Constantine I, was in exile in London. Greek politicians began to argue for the re-establishment of the monarchy and the king's return to his homeland. Following a coup d'etat on the 10th of October 1935, the monarchy was restored and King George II returned to Greece and reclaimed his throne. The elections of 1936 saw the Communist Party of Greece, or KKE, win 15 parliament seats, which exacerbated the already fragile political climate. Metaxas was appointed Minister of Defense and Vice President of the Demirtis government, which had been sworn in on the 14th of March. Unfortunately, Prime Minister Demirtis died from a heart attack the following month, making Metaxas the next Prime Minister of Greece, a post he would hold on to until his death in 1941. His appointment to Prime Minister did not come without its share of problems. Metaxas was not popular among the poor and working class citizens. Strikes began to occur in protest only weeks after he assumed his post. These were mainly concentrated in Macedonia and later the port city of Thelesanaki. The strikes in Macedonia were put down, sometimes violently, by General Nikolas Siporas, the recently appointed Governor General of Macedonia. Just a few months later, 
Prior to the announced general strike, Metaxas established the 4th of August regime, which dissolved parts of the constitution and suspended the Greek parliament. Prime Minister Metaxas was now a dictator. He would go on to claim he and King George II chose this option as a way to prevent a potential communist takeover, but it is generally accepted that the communists did not possess the influence or the resources to spark a civil war. Rather, it seems they aimed for parliament seats and a voice in the government. The 4th of August regime allied itself more with Great Britain and France than it did with Italy or Germany. Despite Metaxas' own schooling at the Berlin War Academy at the turn of the 20th century and his admiration of Prussian militarism, he still wished to remain out of any and all future European conflicts. Greece had been through numerous wars in the previous decades, the First and Second Balkan Wars, World War I, and the Greco-Turkish War. Plus, the Greek economy was still struggling to recover from the Great Depression. War, which Germany and Italy seemed to hell-bent on, did not make sense. Secondly, Mussolini hoped to rebuild the once mighty Roman Empire. Mare Nostrum, R.C., is a Roman name for the Mediterranean Sea. Mussolini envisioned not only a reunited Roman Empire, but one that was even stronger and more powerful. But one of the many countries in his way of achieving these lofty goals? Greece. Greece had been in a pseudo-state of war for a few months when Ambassador Gracier had handed Metaxas his ultimatum. On the 15th of August of the same year, the Greek light cruiser RHN Eli had been torpedoed in the port by Italian submarine Delfino. Eli had just arrived at the island of Tinos to mark the Feast of Assumption. Eli's crew were assigned to carry an icon of the Virgin Mary around town in the annual ritual. That morning, Eli arrived at Tinos and anchored. As her crew prepared to depart the ship, someone shouted out an alarm, incoming torpedo from starboard. Four torpedoes were fired at the stationary ship. Three missed. Unfortunately, one did find its mark and struck amidship. The ship was immediately flung into chaos as men and equipment were thrown around like ragdolls. Those below deck suffered the greatest. Captain Angelos Hatzopoulos had been in his quarters trying to get a nap when the explosion threw him onto the deck. His first thought was that a magazine had somehow detonated, perhaps due to the hot August heat. But upon going on deck, a large hole extending the height of the ship was visible between Eli's two smokestacks. Within minutes, the once largest ship of the Greek Navy had begun to list as seawater poured into her berthing and engineering spaces. An attempt was made to tow the ship out to sea and beach her on an empty stretch of land because of the risk of her death charges detonating due to the fires, potentially leveling the port. This failed, and after multiple tow lines snapped, uh, Eli sank below the waves. Nine sailors were killed and 24 were wounded. Fragments of the torpedoes that missed were collected and confirmed their origin. Italy. 
Greek politicians did not want to publicly divulge their origin to prevent war. The Greek public, however, were well aware of who was responsible for the deaths of their countrymen. Alors, c'est la guerre. So it is war. Few times in our modern history have so few words contained so much meaning. Immediately, the Greek media shortened his response to Ohi, no. Metaxas' response immediately rallied the Greek populace. Across the country, young men waited in lines to enlist in the military, and reserves were called to active duty in preparation for the inevitable invasion, which began only hours after the ultimatum was given. Miko Elvo was a young college student when war erupted. He described the atmosphere in an interview decades later. When the war was declared, I was very impressed. What impressed me more than anything was the people's enthusiasm and their eagerness to go and join the army, and how organized everything was. I heard about the war at 7 in the morning while I was having my morning shave, because I used to shave at 7, and at 8 I had to be at the Polytechnic. It was the first day of the classes for the chemist. The rest of the classes had already started. So while I was shaving, I heard the sirens. What is going on? I thought. We were at war. We were stupefied. I don't remember how the rest of the day passed. What I remember was the way we were impressed at night, seeing all the people hanging from the trams and everybody running to go and join. And everything happened in great order. This excitement on the night of the 28th of October in Athens was something that really made one move. And we waited. End quote. For the next four years, Greek soldiers and civilians fought side by side to resist Axis rule through conventional warfare, espionage, and sabotage. Their fighting spirits inspired the likes of Winston Churchill, who was struggling in his own fight against Germany. Quote, Hence, we will not say that Greeks fight like heroes, but that heroes fight like Greeks. End quote. President Roosevelt echoed his sentiments after the Italian forces were forced out of the country. Quote, when the entire world had lost all hope, the Greek people dared to question the invincibility of the German monster raising against it the proud spirit of freedom. End quote. The invasion of Greece on the 20th of October 1940 came weeks later than first envisioned by Italian strategists. Initial planning called for military operations to begin on the 1st of September, the anniversary of Germany's invasion of Poland. It was then pushed back to the 1st of October and then the 20th of October. Mussolini seems to have been uncertain on the best method of dealing with Greece. His forces could either invade Greece, which was eventually chosen, they could attack Yugoslavia and conduct operations along the border with Greece, or just create a defense along Greece's border and starve the country. Just before the 0600 deadline, the first Italian troops crossed the Albanian border into Greece. General Visconti Prosca, commander of the occupation force in Albania, began his attack with the Giulia division, consisting of about 11,000 men. The Ferrara and Centauro divisions, uh, about 17,000 men, advanced as part of the center force. The Italian army quickly captured 
a few of their objectives, and Prasca boasted of his success to Mussolini. Quote, the Greeks have put up little resistance or have run away, even leaving tables laid and hot food behind them. End quote. Now, while there is some truth to this, most of the Greek defense was further inland. In a matter of hours, the dirt roads turned to mud, and they bogged down the men and equipment, and brought the advance to a snail's crawl. Once calm and tranquil river streams turned into raging rivers of mud and debris. But Italian generals reaffirmed their commitment to continue the advance. In the minds of many strategists, the Greek military would not have the heart to defend their country and would crumble under the Italian might. This arrogance would not only prove false, but also disastrous. Days into their advance, firefighters began to pop up as the front line advanced further. Italian losses mounted day by day, despite their superior numbers, technology, and perceived spirit. The Greek losses, however, remained low, as their knowledge of the terrain and logistical support from their countrymen overshadowed their weaknesses. For the Greeks had one huge advantage that the Italians did not. They were fighting for their homeland, and they were hell-bent on not letting it go without a fight. And a fight they would have. Lieutenant General Alexandros Papagos, commander-in-chief of the Greek army, led the counterattack along the Greek-Albanian border. His surprise attack into Albania caught parts of the Italian 83rd Regiment by surprise, creating confusion and mayhem up and down the Italian front. General John Itzikasa's three divisions defeated the Italian 9th Army in mountainous terrain. This was the beginning of the end for the Italians. General Prosco was forced to withdraw his troops in the face of mounting casualties and the possibility of being surrounded. The Italian defeat by the supposed weaker Greeks would actually cost him his job. His replacement, General Ubaldo Sudo, could do little to fix the situation, and on the 19th of November he ordered a complete withdrawal of all Italian troops from Greece only three weeks after the initial invasion. Mussolini, with his quick-firing temper, upon hearing the news, yelled at his head of military intelligence, General Cesare Ame, I want the truth, because I'm going to have various heads blown off by a firing squad. General Papagos pursued the retreating Italians 20 miles into Albanian territory before ordering a full stop. He feared that the deeper his troops went into Albania, the higher the risk his men had of falling into a trap or having their supply lines severed. Unbeknownst to him, the Italian army did in fact have a supply issue and were not fully equipped to continue a full-blown defense. As the Greeks won victory after victory, they captured thousands of Italian prisoners along with ammunition and other provisions. An article dated the 21st of November 1940 from the Central Queensland Herald gives us an idea of the situation the Italians faced. The article title reads Italian Forces in Albania. Quote, it is authoritatively stated that Italy has 200,000 to 250,000 troops in Albania and a certain quantity of food and ammunition, but it is unlikely 
that she can conduct a major campaign without communications with Italy. From Athens on the 16th of November, a night communique states, Intense artillery and air activity continues along the front. We have taken 700 prisoners, captured 10 guns, and shot down three enemy planes. End quote. With morale nearing an all-time low and a harsh winter settling in, Il Duce traveled to Albania in March of 1941 and toured the front lines. His presence gave a morale boost to his troops who sat suffering in the frostbite conditions of the Balkans. What they did not know was only months earlier, Mussolini placed the blame on these very men. On Christmas Day, he remarked, Quote, this snow and cold are very good. In this way, our good-for-nothing men and this mediocre race will be improved. The human material I have to work with is useless. Worthless. End quote. Mussolini personally oversaw the attempted offensive in early March to push back the Greeks. Unfortunately for them, an Italian officer had been captured and the plans of the attack were known. For nearly a week, wave after wave of Italian soldiers were cut down by the well-entrenched Greek soldiers. By the 16th of March, the attack was called off, and another 12,000 casualties were added to the list. This was the final embarrassment for Mussolini. Hitler, disgusted with the failures of his ally, decided he would need to take over and ordered over half a million soldiers to do what Il Duce couldn't, conquer Greece. Prime Minister Metaxas would not live to see his beloved nation fall to the Nazi war machine. On the 18th of January, he had arrived at the Grand Britannia headquarters with a sore throat. Doctors provided him with some medicine and advised him to take some rest which of course he refused to do. Unfortunately, his throat infection turned into an abscess, which aggravated a previous kidney infection. Septicemia set in, and he fell into a coma. Early on the morning of the 29th of January, he passed away at his home, at 69 years of age. Conspiracy theories have risen over the years surrounding his death. One claims that a British doctor had been summoned hours before his death and gave him a supply of oxygen. Some believe he was poisoned because he had refused to allow British troops to enter the country. However, there is no evidence to suggest he died of anything but septicemia brought on by a throat infection. In early March 1941, British troops did finally land on Greek soil. Traveling from the battlefields of North Africa, these battle-hardened soldiers of His Majesty's armed forces arrived at the port of Athens to prepare for action on the Greek front against a possible German invasion. After Yugoslavia signed the Tripartite Pact with the Axis powers, their government was overthrown and German troops entered. Greece was now surrounded. On the 6th of April, 1941, propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels read Hitler's declaration of war against Yugoslavia over the Berlin radio. Contained in it are the reasons for Yugoslavia joining the fight against the British on the side of Axis. Greece is also mentioned. 
Quote, I have repeatedly warned of any attempt by the British to land troops in southeastern Europe, and I have said that this constitutes a threat to the German Reich. When British divisions were landed in Greece, just as in World War days, the Serbs thought the time was ripe for taking advantage of the situation for new assassinations against Germany and her allies. The fight on Greek soil is not a battle against the Greek people, but against the arch-enemy, England, which is again trying to extend the war far into the southeast Balkans, the same as he tried far in the north last year. For this reason, on this very spot in the Balkans, we shall fight shoulder to shoulder with our ally, until the last Briton has found his Dunkirke in Greece. If any Greeks support this British course, then those Greeks will fall at the same time as the British. End quote. That same day, German troops crossed the border into Greece. In less than two weeks, Yugoslavia fell to the speed of the German blitzkrieg. The contingent of British troops that had landed in Greece in early March, under the command of General Henry Maitland Wilson, do little to fight off the German push. Towns and cities quickly fell, as the Greek front line was pushed farther and farther back into the country. By the 27th of April, Athens fell, and the Nazi flag was raised over the Acropolis. Despite Greece being occupied by German forces, the fight was not over. For the next few years, resistance groups across the country sprang up to fight back against the German overlords. The most notable of these were the National Popular Liberation Army, ELAS, a communist-centric group, and the Republican Greek National Democratic Union, EDES, largely supported by the British. These groups operated mainly independently of one another, but on occasion did cooperate to sabotage larger targets such as rail lines or ammunition depots. Both had the goal of cleansing Greece of the Nazi plague, but differed on how to rule after. This resulted in a civil war before a temporary ceasefire was brokered. This ceasefire lasted until late 1944 when, with the Soviets entering the Balkans, German troops fled. In an effort to prevent communism from spreading, the British were forced to take the side of the Democratic Union and fight back the Liberation Army. This did not garner much popular support among the citizens in England, considering war with Germany was still ongoing. Though Greece did ultimately fall to Nazi Germany, that Greek spirit and tenacity that pushed the Italians out of the country and forced Germany to invade may very well have been the beginning of the end for the Nazis. Hitler had hoped to invade the Soviet Union that spring. Instead, he was forced to delay his invasion and divert a large percentage of men and personnel to deal with pesky Greece. This delay contributed to the lengthening of Operation Barbarossa into the winter months and Germany's eventual retreat from the Soviet Union. I will end this short podcast with a quote from John Mulgan, a New Zealand journalist who joined the Territorial Army in 1938 because he believed war 
was inevitable. Mulgan would be sent to the Middle East and fought alongside other British troops before being sent to Greece in 1943 to assist local guerrilla groups in their fights against the Germans. He parachuted into occupied Greece as a British liaison officer with Special Operations Executive, SOE. Here, he learned the Greek language and worked side by side with the guerrillas until German forces were forced to retreat. Prior to his death, in April of 1945, he commented on the bravery of the Greek people, which is the epitome of Ohide. Quote, The real heroes of the Greek war resistance were the common people of the hills. It was on them, with their bitter, uncomplaining endurance, that the German terror broke. They produced no traitors, we moved friendly among them, and were guided by them into German-held villages by night without fear. They never surrendered or compromised, and as a result, the Germans kept five divisions guarding Greece all through the war. The Greek people paid a terrible and disproportionate price for this resistance. On a particular occasion, near Lamia in 1944, they had the look of all peasant Greeks, of men who don't expect much fun, but are prepared to endure. They didn't ask us to stop sabotaging the railway lines, but requested modestly that if we did anything, it would be on a scale compared to the reprisals that would follow. End quote. Thank you for listening to DE Classified. This podcast is brought to you by the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum aboard USS Slater. You can find a transcript of this episode, accompanying photos, and a bibliography at ussslater.org forward slash DE dash classified. My name is John Epp, and we'll see you next month when we de-classify USS Samuel B. Roberts.